Good morning. I think Pastor Tim threw that last part in because of me. If you've ever heard me teach before, then you know that I like to go all over the Bible. So we're going to go Genesis to Revelation today. Buckle up. <laughs> Buckle up. Hopefully you took some coffee. If you don't, there's coffee outside. We'll be here for 27 hours. I'm just playing. Good morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel, Richmond. Good morning to all of you guys online. We're glad to have you all here. Uh, my name is Zach Cawthorn. Uh, I'm not the usual person that stands up here and speaks, but I'm very blessed and glad to be here with you today. My family and I have been um, overseas for the last 11 years serving in South Asia, and we're blessed to be here just to be able to share before we head back next Monday. So you can be lifting us up. If you want to hear any more about what we do, you can just ask me afterwards if you don't know. I'd love to share that with you. Um, this week, another announcement for you guys. This week, we will have the 10th Hour Project coming in. They'll be here on Wednesday and also on Saturday to share with. Wednesday, they'll be sharing with our youth, and then their director will actually be in here sharing the word with us Wednesday night. So come out. This project is partnered with one of our partners in Uganda. They actually go around the United States and spend time evangelizing and then go to Uganda and spend three months evangelizing during that time period. There's 12 college students or college-age students that take a year off from everything that they're doing to seek God's face, to be discipled, and then to go and to share the truth that they've learned. Um, so it's a really, a really wonderful project. And, a, and on Saturday at 10 o'clock, they'll actually be teaching us a little bit about evangelism. And I don't know if any of you have ever gone out and evangelized or ever gone to an evangelism training. There's a lot of blessing and just going and experiencing and hearing from people who are doing it. These kids are traveling all over the United States and just going out and sharing about Jesus, um, sharing about the hope that they have in Jesus. So please come out on Wednesday and then also on Saturday. And before, uh, before we get into the Word this morning, we'll also continue praying for revival. We've been praying for revival since before uh, my wife and I moved over to South Asia, so uh, well over 11 years, and we believe that we needed to pray for it more now than we've ever prayed for it before. There's a need not just in our country, but all over the world. Uh, we'll be getting onto our knees if you want to. If you're new here, you don't feel like that's something that you'd like to do, feel free to just sit in your seat. It's not rote um, law or anything like that. It's just us setting a posture before Jesus saying, hey, we really just surrender ourselves to you and would ask for you to move in these ways. We've also been praying for one country every single week. Uh, this week's country is Indonesia. It's the second largest Muslim populated country in the world just behind India, um, and it is under Sharia law. They've got a lot of fun stuff that's going on there. There's a persecuted church that's there. It's really hard to come into the kingdom there. When you come in, you're immediately persecuted by family and everyone else. So they need the revival, and they need a lot of prayer just as much as we do. So if you would, uh, we'll, we can go ahead and get on our knees if you feel comfortable for it, and I'll pray for about, we can pray for about 45 seconds, and then I'll pop up and pray for us.
Lord, we, uh, we come to you this morning and we thank you that you are holy. We thank you that you are mighty, Lord. We thank you that you have everything in control. You have everything in the palm of your hand, Lord. I thank you that we have nothing in our hands, even when we think that we do, God. Lord, I pray that you would move powerfully, Father, in this country, in this city, in this service, Lord, that you would move, that you would bring many to repentance, Father, that you would open up our ears and our hearts and our minds to know you, and that we would follow you with all that we are, Jesus. Lord, I pray for um, the prodigals, God. I pray that you would bring prodigals home. There's so many prodigals in this church. There's so many prodigals outside of this church. There's so many prodigals across this country, Lord. I pray that you would do a movement that we would call the prodigal movement because prodigals are coming home, Jesus. I just ask that you would do that across the world, Lord. And I pray for those who do not know you, those who have never had the opportunity to hear about you, those who have rejected you before they've even heard about you, Lord. I pray that you would break free, that you would break through in Jesus' name, Lord. We pray specifically for Indonesia, Lord. We pray that you would remove veils from faces metaphorically and literally, Lord, that you would remove the veils so that they can hear your voice and respond to the truth, Lord. I pray that you would break through in many ways, Lord. I pray that you would strengthen all of the believers that are there, all of the workers that are there, who are there calling people. I pray that you would protect them, that you would give them boldness, Lord. I just think about the church of Acts this morning, whenever they went and they left being beaten, um, John and Peter did, and they rejoiced that they were able to suffer a little bit for you. God, I pray that you would give the Indonesian church, that type of joy, Jesus. And Lord, I pray that we would remember them, that you would be with all those that are persecuted, all those that are in prison um, for your namesake right now, Lord. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you're getting back to your seats, um, I'll... Get ready with your Bibles. We'll be in Exodus 15. The title of our message this morning is Bitter Sweet. Not bittersweet, but bitter sweet. I know that some of you guys like bittersweet candies, like gummy worms and maybe some bittersweet chocolate bark. We're not talking about that this morning, although some of you may enjoy it. We're talking about the bitter things that the Lord turns into sweet in our lives. Um, this message this morning will be in Exodus, and it's a verse and a passage that a lot of us don't really pay attention to, but it's the one that the Lord brought to me, um, and so I pray that you'll be blessed by it. Uh, let's pray one more time before we open up the scriptures. Father, I pray that you would move in your power, that you would work, God, that you would glorify yourself, and that you would be glorified by us, Father. I pray that you would give us ears to hear, minds to receive, and hearts to understand your word, Lord. I pray that you would take my fumble, mumbled words, Lord, and that you would turn them into your um, inspired words, Father. I pray all this in your precious name. Amen. So before you go to Exodus 15, flip to a book before it, Genesis 15. That's where we're going to start this morning. And before we actually get there, I'm going to have to bring you up to speed just in case you didn't know what was going on. Um, 
Adam and Eve show up on the scene inside of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is a perfect place, and God has set them in this perfect place where there's perfection going on. They, in turn, sin, and they disobey God's commands. And because of that, they receive a punishment of being sent out of the garden. And part of that punishment, they go out of a perfect world where everything was provided for them into a broken world where things are now hard. And part of that punishment is that they actually have to go into a hard life instead of being in a easy and cushy, if you will, life. The world turns, Adam and Eve have some kids, those kids grow up and more kids are having had and then the world gets a little bit more full with people. And during that time, people begin to continue in their disobedience and they continue in their transgressions. And those transgressions grow so much that God sends a flood on the earth and a guy named Noah who takes his family into a boat and escapes that flood. Time goes over again. The world gets a little bit more filled. The Tower of Babel happens. And then we see in Genesis 12, a man called out by God to be holy, to be set apart and literally called apart from his family and his land. This man's name is Abram. And God says, Abram, I want you to go from this place and go to another place to which I'm sending you. So he leaves his mother, he leaves his father, he leaves his home and he goes out and he takes his wife Sarai with him. During that time period, his nephew Lot says, hey, I want to go with you. So nephew Lot goes along with them and they set out on this journey. They go to multiple different places. And then during that time, because they're obeying God and they're listening to what he's saying, he blesses them and he grows their wealth and he grows their flocks. And as happens with most things, Wealth creates problems, so Lot and his, and his uh, Abraham's servants begin to start fighting. And they say, hey, we're kin. There's no reason for us to fight. Maybe we should live separately. So Lot, he says, Lot, look around and go to the place that you feel like you should go, and I'll go to the place that I feel like I should go. So Lot looks around. He sees these beautiful cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't know why he would ever think that. Hindsight being 2020, we're like, yeah, that's, that was a really bad decision. <laughs> but he goes towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and he settles in that place. Abram goes towards um, the land of Canaan, and God meets with him there and says, walk to the north and to the east and to the west and to the south. All of the land that you walk will become yours one day. During that time that he's walking and he's hanging out, some kings, a coalition of kings come down into the Sodom and Gomorrah area and they conquer Sodom and Gomorrah and they capture all of the people, Lot, not all the people, a lot of people and Lot and his family being part of that that's captured and all of their wealth and carries them off into their land. Somebody runs from that war, comes to Abram and says, hey, Abram, your nephew has been carried off. And Abram rallies his servants and rallies his men, 300 plus men, and they ride out and they rout this army that, the, that these cities and other, coalitions of, of, um, other coalition of kings could not battle against. So they rout them and they bring the people back. And as they're coming back, they meet the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and they meet the king of a place called Salem, whose name was Melchizedek. Melchizedek's a priest, a high priest and a king at the same time. And Melchizedek blesses Abram. 
And Abram returns all of the money and everything that he got from the spoils of the war to the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and says, look, I'm giving all this back to you guys because I don't want you guys to say that you made Abram rich. So we get into our first passage this morning with that happening. In Genesis 15, 1, I'm only going to read the first verse for us this morning. But it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And he says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Then Abram says, God, but even if I get a great reward, I have no descendants. It's just me and my wife here, and Eleazar is going to take everything that I have who's one of my servants. So even if I have great reward, I have no one to share it with. It can't go to anyone. And God says, go out of your tent and look up at the sky and see all the stars. Count them. That's how many descendants you're going to have. And Abram asks God, he says, how is this going to happen? And God says, do this. Prepare a sacrifice for me. So he prepares a sacrifice. Remember, Abram's just had this mighty victory. He just showed off these kings in Sodom and Gomorrah, brought back his kinfolk. God says, make this this sacrifice. So he prepares a sacrifice, and he's batting off birds to keep them from trying to eat the sacrifice in the way that it is. And we start in verse 12, 15, 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Some of us right now, a deep sleep's fallen on us. Just playing. (laughs) A deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Hopefully, no dreadful and great darkness has fallen upon you right now. Dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Hold on. Wait, God. You just said that I would have great rewards and that you're my shield. Great rewards means that I'll be, my, my descendants will be afflicted for 400 years as slaves? Are you kidding me? That there's a little bit of a head scratcher, isn't it? Honestly, a lot of us, whenever we read scriptures like this, or whenever we see things like this, we begin to rebel against God immediately. No, God, you've promised life and life abundantly. No, God, you've promised joy and more joy. No, God, you've promised blessing. But I'll tell you, brother and sister, this says for certain. And if God says for certain then you can go ahead and say that 100% is going to happen. 100%. Now, there are other prophecies inside of the Bible where God says, if you do this, then this will happen. If you don't do this, then this will happen. But Abraham here is receiving his just rewards of your descendants are going to spend 400 years in captivity. Look at verse 14. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Verse 16, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. 
for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God says, I'm going to send them off for certain. They're going to be in captivity for 400 years. But after those 400 years, their possessors will get their just rewards. They will be judged, and they will come out with great, great possessions. You, Abram, you're going to go away. You're going to die, and that's okay. But your descendants will have to endure this. Check out the very last part of verse 16. It says, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. They'll come back to this land that I just told you. Walk to the north, the south, the east, the west. They will come back and they will take this land. For the, but it'll wait until the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. I want you to take that part and hold on to it. Because we're going to come back later and talk about that. Now, I'm going to catch you up from Genesis 15 all the way to Exodus 15. Abram begets Isaac. Isaac begets Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of his 12 sons is a son named Joseph. Joseph is sold into slavery, just as a precursor of what's going to happen to the people, by his brothers. While he's in slavery in Egypt, he actually gets word from the Lord, saves all of Egypt, his family comes over and they begin to dwell inside of Egypt. And the, the, 12, the 12 brothers plus his dad actually live there in Egypt. After some time, God begins to multiply them. They're multiplying. They get given this beautiful piece of land. It's actually the most choice piece of land in all of Egypt. And they get given this land and say, here, settle there. And they begin to multiply all over the place. God's blessing them. And then a Pharaoh comes in and says, whoa, these guys are multiplying too fast. If they decide that they're going to war against us, then we'll lose because they're, they're multiplying so fast. So let's do something. Let's enslave all these people. And thus begins their 400 years of slavery. Sometime around that 400-year time period, Moses shows up on the scene. God says, I've heard the cries of my people and we are going to bring them out from their captivity. So in that time period, Moses goes into Pharaoh's place, and 10 plagues come upon the Egyptians. Inside of those 10 plagues, the, the Israelites don't see or experience hardly any of that stuff inside of their land, if not any of that stuff inside of their land. They're protected by God's hand. Now, they're still multiplying. They're still growing. We've gone to see Abram by himself with Sarai or Abram and then Isaac to close to or more than a million people now, 400 years, as his generation is starting to look like the stars in the sky. His generations are starting to look like the stars in the sky. They get to go. God kicks them out, or the, the Pharaoh kicks them out of Egypt says, you no longer have to be here. Leave. Actually, he says, leave this place and bless me too, which is an interesting thing to say, considering like 10 days later, he says, everybody, let's go get them. He gets his army, all of his chariots and his people, and he says, let's go. They all hop on their chariots and they start running after the Israelites. Now, the Israelites get between a rock and a hard place, except for this isn't a rock and a hard place, it's water in a hard place. 
by the Red Sea, and they're about to be wiped out, completely wiped out from the earth by these Egyptians. And God, but God, shows up. They're already following a cloud of a pillar of a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And that cloud turns around and surrounds the Israelites. During, not the Israelites, the Egyptians. During that time that it's surrounding the Egyptians so they can't get to them, God opens up a path in the water. The Israelites begin to pass. They go through the water. They're able to pass on dry ground. They get to the other side. God simultaneously leads the Egyptians into the water. I mean, just going to say, said this in the first service, I'm just going to say, if you see some crazy people doing crazy stuff, you probably shouldn't follow those crazy people into that crazy stuff. The water's parting, you got, you got water there, and you're just going to say, oh yeah, I'm going to follow those guys right in. Yeah, that, that looks like a very safe thing. Some of you thrill seekers are like, yeah, I'd love to do that. I'm one of those thrill seekers. <laughs> but some of us cautious people are like, yeah, right, I ain't doing that. So they go in, the water crashes on them, swallows them up, and the Egyptians are no more. Their oppressors have been judged. 400 years, 400 years, the prophecy has been fulfilled. They would go 400 years, certainly be oppressed. And then after that, they would do what? They would go out and they would have great possessions. When they left Egypt, they looted the entire place. All of their neighbors, they went to him and said, hey, can I have some gold? Everybody's like, oh, yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah, here, take all this too. Oh, you need a car? Here's a car. Wouldn't that be wonderful? They gave them everything. So they go out and they loot and they have great possessions and they have a great reward. Now that brings us up to Exodus 14, the end of Exodus 14. In Exodus 15, they're on the other side of the Red Sea. And what do they do? Man, they sing. They worship God. They party. Probably like they have never partied before. They are so jubilant, so excited. They are so happy that their captivity has been over. That they worship. Miriam takes the tambourine and she goes, oh, starts dancing. Everybody goes around and they are excited. And then that brings us into our passage in Exodus 15. If you look at Exodus 15, we're going to start in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. So they've gone from that place. They're going out into a wilderness. They went three days in the wilderness, and they found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, which means bitterness. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? All right. You just saw 10 plagues. You experienced 10 plagues. You saw a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke leading you. You just watched the waters pile up. You saw 
all of the Israelites that were pursuing you die without you having to pick up a sword. You were completely let out without a single sword. You just had the party of your life. Three days later, well, God, what are you doing up there? Bad on you. I don't have any water. They've completely changed. They start to grumble against God. Now, let me ask you, who does that sound like? Does that sound like you and me? Yesterday was beautiful. Sun was shining. Clouds were wonderful. We're like running weather, yeah. Like beach weather, yeah. We're like hang out in that hammock weather, yeah. It was wonderful. Let's do whatever we want to do. Today it's raining. Everybody's like, it's raining. God, why are you making it rain? I don't want to be here. I'm not going out to church. I'm not doing anything. It's raining outside. Less than 24 hours later, we're grumbling. Sounds a lot like we are the same as these Israelites. But what does Moses do? I love what Moses does. Verse 25. And Moses cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Here's the picture for us. Moses looks to God. The Israelites look at their own situation, and they say, what is it going to do? Has God not protected you this entire time? Has God not been taking care of you? Has God not made you into a nation during that 400 years? He was even protecting you and taking care of you during that 400 years of captivity. Did he not just create plagues and completely have you free and loot the place that you were at? Did he not just do that? Yes, he has done that. But still you grumble. I love how Moses doesn't say, hmm, well, the pH balance of this water is actually 4.29. If we put in a little bit of acidic over here and do this, then that will work. No, he looks to God and God says, pick up that stick and throw it in there. Now, don't try this at home. <laughs> don't go to whatever infested water that you have close by your house, stagnant infested water, and say, oh, there's a stick. Now I can drink this water. I promise you, you will have worms. You will get typhoid. You will be sick. Don't do that. But whenever God tells you to do something, he will turn the bitter into sweet. Verse, end of verse 25, it says, There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them. God took them, catch this people, God took them from abundant water by the Red Sea into the wilderness to Mara, so that he could test them. He tested them to see if they would look at him, to see if they would listen to him. Verse 26, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes... And give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes. I will bless you and make you a great nation. No, that's not what it says. It says, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. Hold on, wait. So if I follow your commands, I'm going to get a bunch of riches? No. If I follow your commands, I'm going to have 18 million kids? No. 
if I follow your commands, if you follow my commands, then you will not have the diseases put on you that the Egyptians had put on you. Wait, so I'm not going to be like them that you just destroyed? I guess that's a consolation prize. That's what most of us would think. We read the scriptures so often and say, I need the blessings. I need the money. I need the fame. I need the riches. But here we see in this that God says, if you follow, you just won't have the diseases. While the 10 plagues were going on, there's two different things that are happening There's a physical manifestation of the plagues that are coming into the natural world. In the spiritual, there's 10 different Egyptian gods that are being mopped because they had Egyptian gods that each correlated to each of the different plagues. They're being mopped and just kind of drugged through the dirt saying, you don't have the power, I have the power. And in the same way, God is telling the Israelites right here, a physical manifestation of turning water from bitter water into sweet water and also a spiritual truth of if you come to him and you look to him and you obey his commands, he will turn your bitter soul into the sweetness and the goodness that is in him. The last part of that verse says, For I am the Lord your healer. God says, I'm your healer. I'll keep you away from those diseases. I'll keep those diseases away from you. In Exodus, uh, sorry, Genesis 15, 1, he tells, uh, he tells Abraham, he says, I am your shield. The only reason you were able to rout those kings is because I'm your shield. And from that, you'll receive great reward. I will give you great reward. I will give you great reward because I am your shield. And even during that time when Israel is in their 400 years of, um, of slavery, God protected them. He made them a nation. He made them multiply. He grew them as a people. Now, they had to go through some horrible, horrible things. They had to build some terrible things. They had to work day and night. They had their firstborn children, firstborn sons, thrown into the Nile River. Some horrible things. But even still in that, God was protecting them and multiplying them and taking care of them. God was telling them, I am your physical healer. I will keep these diseases from you. But he was also saying, I'm your spiritual healer. I will heal you from the sin that so greatly enslaves you. If you allow me, if you obey my commands, if you listen, I'll heal you from the spiritual disease of sin and death that plagued you ever since Adam and Eve's disobedience. That was the call then. That's still the call today. God is echoing that same exact call some thousands of years later, saying to us, He will turn your bitterness into sweet. Jesus says something close to that. So I'm back up. 
Before that, think of those ten plagues. In Revelation, there are seven trumpets. The trumpets, at the, on the seventh trumpet or the sixth trumpet, I can't remember exactly, one of those trumpets, there is plagues that are then released on the world. Some of those exact same plagues in Exodus that happened in Egypt are the exact same plagues that happened there in the book of Revelation. So for those who do not believe, those who do not follow God, we'll see those plagues. There's water into blood. There's hailstones. There's darkness. There's boils and diseases on the skin. They're all paralleled there. Yeah, that's set for those who spiritually and physically reject the voice of God. So Jesus says something similar to what we see here in Exodus 15 and John 14. In verses 15, 21, and 23, Jesus says, same thing three times, he says, if you obey my commands, those who love me obey my commands, those who love me obey my words, if we listen and obey Jesus, then that shows that we follow him and that we love him. But not only will we, will we not receive the, the diseases that the Egyptians had on them, the context of John 14 is Jesus telling them that they will receive the Holy Spirit. They'll receive the helper. So if they follow and listen, we now, if we follow and listen, we will not receive the diseases, but we will also receive the Holy Spirit couple of things I want to challenge us with from this story and the passage this morning. First one is, what is your theology of suffering? What's your theology of suffering? Do you grumble at every event that doesn't go your way? God, I'm supposed to be blessed. Do you shake your fist at God when you don't get your promotion? Your tire goes flat, you stub your toe, your kid gets sick, you lose a loved one. What about when someone speaks evil of your way of life, your faith in Jesus, your hope in the resurrection? The Israelites spent roughly 400 years in captivity, building all sorts of things in that hot desert, treating terrible, treated terrible, and God heard their cries for freedom. But during that time of slavery, he never left nor forsook them. He was with them. He was nurturing them. He was growing them. And believe it or not, he was protecting them. What's your theology of suffering? When bad things happen, do you immediately turn to God and look to him? Or do you try to figure those things out on your own? Well, actually, the pH balance is this, so I should probably just throw this in there. 1 Peter 3, 12 through 17 tells us, do not be surprised when fiery trials come against you. They're there to test us. What was that that we just read in um, verse 25 of, of Exodus 15? There the Lord made a statue and a rule, and there he tested them. Interesting thing of that first Peter verses is he says, don't feel like it's something that's strange. He says, this is everyday stuff. Fiery trials are going to come to you. You live in a broken and lost world, church. So when bad things happen to you, you should expect them to happen to you. Especially, 
if you're living for Jesus, especially if you're living for Jesus. When your child dies, when your dog dies, you should expect those things to happen. Not that you should be happy about them. I'm not saying that you should be happy. But those things should not drive you away from Jesus. They should drive you to Jesus. They will make you into those sweet things. He will turn those bitter things into sweet things as long as you allow him. Furthermore, Isaiah 43 tells us that we can go through the fires and he'll be with us. We can go through the waters and they won't overcome us because he is with us. He is the Lord our God. He will turn our bitter waters of Mara into sweet places of his remembrance. Jesus himself told his disciples at the end of the upper room discourse that they would face many troubles and that they would experience the same type of hate that he had. If you look at John 16, Jesus is telling them this entire time that he's in the, in the uh, upper room, and he says, in this world, you're going to get the same exact things that I got. He's actually telling them they're all going to die. You're all going to die for my name's sake. But I love this illustration that Jesus gives in John 16, 20 and 22. He says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because the hour has come. And any of you women who have given birth, you know that there's a lot of sorrow in that time period. Any of you men have been in the room during that time period, you felt some of that sorrow. And then probably for the next 18 years of that life, you felt more sorrow as she beat you over the head for it. I'm just playing. <laughs> just playing. But here's what Jesus said. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world, so also you now have sorrow. But I will see your, you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus is saying that just as the birth of a child overrides childbirth, so we, as we go through much troubles, will receive the same joy that can't be taken away from us as we receive the prize of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, in this book, this Bible that we follow, this Bible that we read, talks more about suffering and more about sorrow than it does about joy and blessing and wonderful things. The reason I ask you, what is your theology of suffering is because this world is nothing but suffering. It's hard. And if this world is not hard for you, then you probably ain't walking in it. It also is there to help us remember that our home is not here. If you're happy living on this earth, you're excited to live on this earth, you don't want to go and be in heaven, you need to check yourself. Because any more days here are more days away from the glory that we have with him. Now, we will receive that greater reward blessing that was promised to Abraham in Genesis 5.1. But what is that blessing? What is that greater reward? I put it before you this morning, that that's to know Jesus, to grow closer to him, to find him more, is the greater blessing. It's not fame. It's not riches. It's not a happy day. It is Jesus right now in this moment, today with you, your healer, 
and your helper, the Holy Spirit. It's the joy, the true joy that can never leave you is to know him and to know that you have my and your healer next to you, my and your Holy Spirit inside of you. To know him and to be, to be near him. That is a joy that no one or nothing can take away. Jesus also confirms this one last time in John 16, 33. He said, I said all these things to you, disciples, my brothers, that you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying, you're going to have trouble, guys. Stuff is going to happen to you that you don't like. But it's okay. I've already overcome this world. I've overcome sin and death. Put your hope and your trust in me. That's where you'll have your over. That's where you will become an overcomer. Suffering, pain, tragedy, it'll strike you. You will get sick. You will lose family members, children, jobs, wealth, friend. Your car will break down. The chimney in your house will have some problems. Your house will break. We know that all of these things are really, truly only a way for us to look at Jesus in the face and watch him provide for us all over again. This is what Exodus 15 is saying. Look to me. If you look to me, if you listen to my voice and you obey my commands, then I'll take care of you. I will be your healer. But woe to you that does not. Unfortunately, you will experience those diseases. Unfortunately, you will feel the pain and the suffering for much longer. Here's our second half of the challenge. What things in your life right now does the Lord want to make bitter, that are bitter that the Lord wants to make sweet? And all these things that we've talked about, Abram, Moses, the Israelites, the, the disciples, the church, we've seen that the greatest sweetness really is to know Jesus and having Jesus, knowing and having our healer with us to never leave us nor forsake us. When we're on a dark night like Abram had, remember, Abram had just come back from a great victory. God had just told him that he's going to bless him and give him great rewards. And what does Abram have right after that? A dark night said upon him came great darkness, great darkness. Whenever you're having a dark night, where are you looking? Who are you going to? Are you looking to God or are you trying to figure it out yourself? Are you trying to figure out how to turn your own bitter water into sweet water? Are you going to God and saying, God, this water is bitter. I need it to be sweet. I need to be able to drink it. Jesus literally went through all the things that we could ever experience and looked at God in the face the entire time. He gave us the perfect example. Never once did he not look away from God. Never once did he not say, Father, what do you want me to do? Even in the garden, sweating drops of blood, he's so anguished. He says, not my will, but thine be done. 
I love the verse in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. Paul says, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Would you say that 400 years of captivity is a light and momentary affliction? No. Paul knew a good bit about trouble. Just read 2 Corinthians 14. Paul will tell you all about it. I was lashed 39 times a couple times. I was stoned. I was shipwrecked a couple times. I was beaten. People abandoned me. People hated me. They forsook me at every corner. And here Paul's saying, oh, it's all just light and momentary. Ah, it's a flesh wound. It's okay. But Paul is realizing that in true reality, that these are physical manifestations when something else is going on in the spiritual, in the unseen realm. We're getting a weight of glory whenever we look at God in the face and we listen and obey his commands in the sight of hard things, of bitter moments, of bitter things. For the things that we see, that, that we see are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What this verse basically says is that things in our life are bitter, but they don't have to make us full of bitterness. They can actually, and they do, shape us into being men and women who cling closer to our Savior. They're preparing for us an eternal weight of glory in the unseen spiritual realm. And as we recognize those things, we don't have to hold on to the bitterness of that moment, but we can enjoy the sweetness that we have in Jesus Christ. Brother and sister, are you holding on to your bitterness? Or are you experiencing the sweetness that the Lord has given you inside of those hard things? Remember I told you, this is my third, third challenge for you, maybe something just for you to think about. Remember I told you to hold on to that last part in Exodus 15. Why did the Israelites, sorry, in Genesis 15, not Exodus, why did the Israelites have to go into 400 years of captivity? If you read this verse, it says, because the Amorites, the iniquity of the Amorites had not be completed. Sometimes, brother and sister, your bitterness, the bitter that comes to you, your suffering is not all about you. It might not even have anything to do with you. I personally believe that that weight that God gave them, that 400 years of captivity that he's given them, is his kindness and love and his slow patience, slow to anger, patient and love that he was for the Amorites. He's giving the Amorites a chance to repent. He's giving them a chance to come to him. But he also knows their hearts. And he knows that they are dead set on doing what they want to do. Because for the Israelites to go into the promised land, what did God tell them to do? He told them to wipe out the Amorites. To destroy those people. Because their iniquities were great. Sometimes, whenever things come upon us, 
It's not always for us. In the Exodus story, God constantly tells, the, tells Moses, I'm bringing these plagues on them so that the Egyptians will know that I am God. He wants them to know just as much as he wants the Israelites to know. But they chose not to. Sometimes, inside of your bitter times, the Lord is doing something in and around someone else because of what you're going through. Paul talks about his struggles openly, the things that he had experienced. One of my favorite is Paul gets shipwrecked. He's on, a, he's on a boat. He's in jail. He's in prison. He's on a boat. He's being transported to Rome. His boat gets stuck out. They're throwing everything overboard. No one dies on the boat. They all land on this island, and they're done with their shipwreck, and they're done with all of their time on the ocean. You know, thinking, oh, yeah, this is happy. Well, what does Paul do? He starts walking around, gathering sticks. They're starting a fire. And what happens to him? A snake jumps up out of the fire and bites him. And if you're, any of you are guys are like me, you're probably freaking out. The other day, we were walking on the High Bridge Trail, and I saw a snake, and I jumped about 30 feet away and screamed at my family, go into the woods. Not really. So I was like, go away, run away, run away. It was just a little rat snake. But I was scared. Paul, though, gets bit by this snake. What does he do? Does he start freaking out? No, he just goes into the fire, flicks it into the fire. Man of a man. <laughs> I tell you what, that Paul, he'll get you. He'll get you. Just flicks it in the fire. The local people are watching Paul. Why does Paul have to get bit by a snake? The local people are watching Paul. I'm sure that being bit by that snake did not feel good, by the way. The local people are watching. They start thinking, oh, he's going to die. He's got some curse on him. No sickness, no pain, no nothing. The local people then begin to think, oh, my goodness, this guy's some type of God. And they start to think they need to start worshiping him. But through that, Paul shares the good news. Paul goes and heals multiple people. He shares the gospel all over that place. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, your afflictions aren't just for you. They're for other people. I would maybe even say most of the time, our sufferings, your tragedy, your bitter moments, they aren't for you. They're for others. For their iniquities to be brought to light, the Amorites' iniquities had to be filled up. Their iniquities were being brought to light. For a chance for repentance, how many times did God say that the Egyptians would know his glory? The people with Paul, they were able to come to repentance because of his shipwrecking, because of a snake biting him. They're for other people to see the God whom you serve, for them to have a chance to turn to the light and give glory to this God. God who masterfully can take one arrow and come back and shoot and hit every target in the room, millions of targets, is also winding our billions of lives all into his story. He's using your suffering, your pain, to help that person, to do something for that man, for that woman, for that child, for those people in that country. All of us who have put our faith in Jesus all have a testimony that we can share of how we were dead men 
and dead women who came to life. And we look back on some of those things in our life, and those things are bitter. But God doesn't want you to hold on to those things as bitterness. He's turned those bitter parts into sweet parts. What's he turning sweet? What does he want to turn sweet into your life? What does he want you to follow today? He's calling the same thing. If you obey my commands, if you follow my voice, then I will be your healer. I will be your physical and your spiritual healer. How does he want you to know him more? Last thing this morning, God's a God of resurrection life. He turns dead things to life. If you look at nature, the death cycle in nature, death feeds everything else so that it can continue to have life. Leaves fall to the ground. They're eaten and broken down by insects and animals. Then that becomes fertilizer for the ground that then allows for more trees and grass to be planted and to grow. Both the animals and the insects are getting their fill. And they're getting their life from that. But at the same time, new trees and new grass and new plants are able to be planted because of that. God himself wants to do resurrection life in every single one of us. And it's through the death of the old man, through the death of the old woman, that we're able to come into this resurrection life. He's working inside of all of our hurt, all of our pain. But a lot of times he has to break up the hardness of heart that we have so that we can receive the goodness and sweet that he has for us. I didn't share this with the first story, with the first, uh, yeah, with the first service, but this just came to my mind. David had to be rebuked by Nathan so that he could repent and come, in, come back to the Lord whenever he cheated with Bathsheba and killed her husband. Death of his son with Bathsheba had to happen so that he could come into repentance. None of the suffering None of the pain that you receive, brother and sister, none of the tragedy that comes to you is ever wasted. It is filling up an eternal glory for you in the unseen realm, but it is also filling up a sweet thing for you right now here in the physical. This morning, my question for you, brother and sister, is what are the bitter things you're holding on to? What are the bitter things that have happened to you in the past? What are the things he wants to turn sweet for you? How are you suffering for him? And if you're not, ask that question of why. Now, don't go run out into the road and get hit by a car so that you get suffering, right? We're not looking for that. There's enough troubles of his own just every day. I don't need to take on tomorrow's troubles. 
because I got enough of them today. Pray with me. Father God, we come to you and we just ask you to reveal in us what you want us to let go of so that it can be sweet. Or where are we looking and trying to figuring out in our own lives? Or where have we tried to rationalize our hurts and pains? And we've held on to them, God, because you are our healer. You want to heal us of our hurts and pains, Lord. Physical pains, our spiritual pains, our emotional pains, Lord. You're also our defender. You're our protector. You're keeping us from the mouth of the lions. Lord, I just pray that you would shine light on the places that you want to bring resurrection life into our lives, Lord. The, the hard grounds that you want to break up, although it is, it's tough. It doesn't feel good. God, I just pray that you would move in your power and your spirit and that you would call us deeper and closer with you so that we can receive that greater reward, that greater blessing of knowing you more, of growing with you more, of finding you more, Lord. Uh, There's a song that came out in the early 2000s by a band called Reliant K. And that song is called Let It All Out. And the chorus of the song says, You said, I know that this will hurt. But if I don't break your heart, the pain will just get worse. If the burden seems too much to bear, the end will justify the weight it took, or the, the, the pain it took to get it there. And God is saying those same things to each one of us. Let him break it. Don't hold on to it. It'll hurt. It hurts, but let him break it. Let him take it. Amen.